So I always say I got into Juilliard by the skin of my teeth because I indeed did speech therapy, had my teeth capped. My poor mom, I think she paid $500. It's a lot of money to get my two front teeth capped. And then I re-auditioned for Juilliard and I got in. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live with the Lortel, an off-Broadway podcast. Please check out our website, livewiththelortel.com, for information about upcoming guests and tickets to our show once this pandemic is over and we can go back in front of a live audience. I miss seeing you. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this week's guest. I idolize her and have been a huge fan from the first time I saw her on stage in Lips Together, Teeth Apart at the Lucille Lortel Theater. Christine Baranski is an actress, singer, and producer. She is a 15-time Emmy Award nominee and two-time Tony Award winner. Off-Broadway, she has 14 credits from playing Lady in Hamlet at the Delacorte to Manhattan Theatre Club's Regrets Only. I'm so honored today to have my favorite actress of all time, the incredible Christine Baranski. Welcome today. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you, Eric. It's lovely to be here. How are things? I know you're at your home with your grandchildren and your daughters. How are things since this shutdown? We are at my Connecticut residence, which is actually my permanent home. I work in New York a great deal, but this is our family homestead, and I was happy to provide refuge for them because they also live in New York, about 20 blocks from me. And when this hit and my show was closed down and we all headed here, we've been here for eight weeks and happy to say I'm a great influence on my grandsons. They're age one and a half, four and six, so you can imagine what my life is like. I spend my days picking up Legos and reading storybooks <laughs> and taking them outside and kicking soccer balls. But it's a great chance for a kind of family intimacy that I hope a lot of people are embracing the opportunity to get to know their loved ones better. It seems to be. I mean, we're all kind of have no choice but to be We have no choice. So yeah, choose the, uh, choose the positive route, which is find new ways of communicating and living communally. But you finished this season. Did you wrap The Good Fight? We had John Tolans on two weeks ago. We did not wrap it. I think John might have told you we were almost there. I think we were seven and a half in out of 10. And we shut down during the filming of the eighth episode. I'm not quite sure how they will creatively do that or what will be ostensibly our last show. So I can't speak on authority, but we did get a solid seven in. And I have to say that the seventh is a very gutsy episode. So many of them this season are. We just did the one that's a send up of the slave play that involved a lawsuit. Anyway, it was an exciting season while we were filming it. I particularly liked my plot line and where my character was being taken by the Kings because the show is so about what's going on, not only in the law firm, but how what is going on in the country is affecting life in the law firm and our personal life. And in this case, Diane, rather than going after Trump or being part of any resistance group or anything, she sort of did that the last few seasons. This time she's going after the suspicious activity of the Justice Department, which even since we stopped shooting this show has become more of an issue of what's going on with them, with our Department of Justice. So it was a very exciting season. I wish we had seen it to the end. I'd love to talk more about Diane Lockhart and her journey with The Good Wife for seven years. And now you've been playing this role for going on 
your 11th year now. I will have completed 11, 11 years. If we what an incredible opportunity to play this woman and watch her journey for 11 years and watch her become unhinged. I'm a huge fan. I was a huge fan of The Good Wife. And now I wait with bated breath for every Thursday morning, as soon as I open my eyes, to be able to download it on CBS All Access and to watch this unfold. It's been so exciting, Eric. I consider myself, if you look at the trajectory of my career, what I've gotten to do as an actress, starting with my training at Juilliard and then classical roles and wonderful roles at regional theater and then off Broadway and Broadway and then suddenly TV, you know, starting a TV career in my 40s and musical comedies in my 50s. I'm suddenly doing Sweeney Todd and Mame in my 50s. And then I had the good fortune of working with Mark Rylance in Boeing, Boeing. And we did nine months of that on Broadway, which was like a return to the stage in a brilliantly executed farce with a brilliant actor. And after that, I said to my manager, you know what would be really great since I've done so much comedy and I've done so much theater, I've done comedy in theater and on television. It would be great to play a really grown-up, sophisticated, intelligent woman in a dramatic role. That's where I think I should go next. And my wish was granted because I think that was 2007 or eight. I was given the script of The Good Wife, and my manager said, this is the best pilot script out there. And of course, it was exactly what I wanted. The role of Diane Lockhart was that woman that I thought would be a wonderful thing to play at that point in my career. Honestly, as you age as an actress, there are cliches that I did not want to fall into. And Diane has avoided all the pitfalls and cliches of aging as a character actress. And I worked with the Kings on making Diane a multi-leveled personality and not falling into the stereotype of her being the bitchy boss or the unhappy older woman who has no children and only has a career. She's bitter. She's a victim, whatever. I didn't even want to make her a raging feminist, even though she is a feminist. I would characterize her as a rather elegant and eloquent person who's got a very strong center and does a lot of equilibrium and she's weathered a lot of crises in her professional and personal life. But the Trump presidency turned out to be a gift because it wasn't not intended when we did the spinoff of The Good Wife and it became The Good Fight. It was really crafted so that I would be the lead. And where do we take Diane Lockhart? Well, she was supposed to, of course, in the pilot, she lost all her money. Her husband was unfaithful to her. She was reeling on a personal, professional level. The only place that would take her it would be an African-American law firm. So there was a huge adjustment going on in her life. And the first season was all about her personal, professional crises and finding her way back. But in the course of that, in the course of shooting the pilot, of course, Donald Trump won the election on a night when we were shooting the pilot. So it's been said many times, of course, that we had to reshoot the beginning of the pilot. And it became a woman, a liberal feminist, sitting there with her mouth hanging open, watching Donald Trump being inaugurated. That was the first image you saw in the pilot. And then as the seasons progressed, it was much of Diane's journey was a response to living during the Trump presidency, which 
of course, I welcome because I rather like Diane, follow the news and am horrified and struggle daily with trying to live in this dystopian world that we've lived in for the last three and a half years. And I have loved that I was able to play a character who was living in the moment that we are living in. That's a real rarity because the Kings have a gift and their writer's room have a gift for assimilating the news and putting it into stories and courtroom cases and the personal lives of the characters. I think the show is utterly unique in that regard. You can't name another show that is so about what we've been living through. And I think when we look back on this period, this show will be a reflection of what we were living through more than any other show. There are other shows that present us with a dystopian universe and how weird it is, Handmaid's Tale and Westworld, all the weirdness of our time and the disorientation. But our show is our country and liberal professionals working in the, and not often, not everyone in the law firm is a liberal. There's Republicans in that law firm. But suffice to say that the people that inhabit our show are people who are trying to deal with life in this present tense. And God knows if we go back in season five, I suppose we're going to have to be in a post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID world, but we'll have to embrace what's going on. To answer your question, it's been an extraordinary gift as an actress. The only thing is with 22 episodes of The Good Wife, it never allowed for me to do theater. I did concert versions and I got to do some movies, but even the 10 episodes that we've had it never has allowed me a niche to go back on the boards. Being such a theater animal, it's one of the drawbacks of being committed to a role for as long as I have been. But it's been a great blessing. Well, it's been a marvel to watch Diane, at least within The Good Wife, who is really always the adult in the room. Yes, I agree. Uh, the voice of reason. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we're living in a world where it's brand new to everybody. And you're watching this woman who, with the voice of reason, who is always the adult, start to unravel. And like many of us, look around and be like, is anybody seeing the same thing that I'm seeing? So yes. it's been great. It's been a mirror, the good fight. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's when people of reason become unhinged and lose their coping mechanisms. Two seasons ago, she was doing psilocybin and doing martial arts, mm -hmm. anything to deal with her anger, her frustration. And last season, it was joining a resistance group and being proactive and going underground. And then that sort of came Axe back at her in a, in a mm -hmm. terrible way. But this year, she's back to being a warrior. And it's amazing that the show was entitled The Good Fight. It was given that title before Donald Trump won the election. And yet so much of what this show is now is people of reason, people who live in the world of where the rule of law is supposed to be the way things have always been and should be, watching the world derail and become unhinged and yet fighting. I think Diane has remained, as I say, her centeredness and her intelligence take her very far. But the fight always changes. Her battles change and how she focuses her energy on the fight. And this year, I particularly loved this season because she was given all these pro bono cases, as you can see in the first few episodes. She's given all these pro bono cases and then realizes that the cases are disappearing and powerful people are well-connected or influential people somehow don't have to comply with subpoenas. They don't have to comply with the rule of law. 
how is that operating? Who's allowing this? And, and then she finds out that judges are being corrupted. And this whole memo 618 becomes like a mystery. This season is her following the path of where does this memo 618 lead? And of course, you can argue, given what just happened with the pardoning of Michael Flynn, that we know exactly where it all leads. So I think, once again, the season has proved to be just utterly so on target about where our greatest fear is. It used to be that our greatest fear and anxiety was living under a Trump presidency. Now, I truly think our greatest fear and anxiety, as reflected in Diane's fight, is living in a world where the rules no longer apply to certain people and the rule of law is not working in this country. And we have a corrupt attorney general who is the president's lawyer, not the people's lawyer. And that's what makes this season so compelling. I just hope when we air the final episode that, and I think we will, I think the thematic arc will resonate for what we were trying to achieve. We'd finished the season. I would love to have known where Diane wound up in her pursuit. She yeah. could. I said to Robert King, I said, I have a feeling she's going to be behind bars in season five. <laughs> as, as, as long as the pinstripes are very chic. You know, I love yes, pinstripes. With a nice belt and a hat. <laughs> yes. You talk about your longevity in the theater and you grew up in the outskirts of Buffalo and you went to Juilliard on a scholarship, but you really lived the life of an actor, auditioning, working regionally, working your way through New York, through other cities, doing classics, doing new plays. Theater for actors is so much different now. It's of, so much of- different. I can only say, Eric, I'm so happy I was an actress when I was a young actress. I didn't, honestly, I had no dream of going to Hollywood. When I was at Juilliard, it seemed to me a kind of English training. All of the training was about going onto the stage. We had no classes in film. I'm not saying that's good or bad. Under the present circumstances, I think acting training has to include how to work in front of a camera. I had to learn that on the job. But that said, I mean, I spent four years, I always joke, I spent four years on the floor, lying down, trying to find my diaphragm, you know, (laughs) and the speech exercises and the movement. I mean, it was a really thorough training and we were always in rehearsal for some play and you'd be doing Shakespeare and then suddenly you'd be doing Tennessee Williams or you'd be doing Jean-Claude Vanitali or you would be doing Beckett and then you'd be doing Moliere. So when I left Juilliard, all I wanted was to make use of that training. And I was in no hurry. I think that's the great difference between when I was young actress and what young people are facing now. They leave school and youth has become a commodity. And the agents will say, you can't go out of town for X number of months, even much less years, because you've got to be there in case there's a pilot. You've got to become known before the age of, you know, 28 or 30, whatever. I think they're under much more pressure because of time. And I didn't feel that my first job. I didn't even collect my diploma. I was already given a job as a lady-in-waiting at the American Shakespeare Theater, where Michael Kahn, my acting teacher at Juilliard, was the artistic director. So he gave me a summer at the American Shakespeare Theater. And I actually understudied Elizabeth Ashley in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. He gave me that job. I can't believe he did because I was just out of school. And I also think he knew Liz Ashley wasn't going to miss any performances. But I knew the (laughs) role and I worked on it. 
Then I went straight to doing Tis Pity, She's a Whore at the McCarter and at the Goodman. I worked for the Phoenix Theater during the summer doing Jean Ennui and Noel Coward, Fume Doke. We did, I did it with John Lithgow and Susie Kurtz. Then it was Baltimore Center Stage. All those years, I did so many great plays there. She Stoops to Conquer, Tartuffe. I did Born Yesterday. I did so many plays there. In addition to working in Washington, D.C., I always called myself the first lady of Amtrak because I just kept getting on the Acela train and stopping either in New Jersey at the McCarter at Princeton or Baltimore or Washington. But I spent years doing that. And my manager, I remember her saying, when are you going to start your career in New York? And I remember I was doing The Cherry Orchard in Baltimore. And I said, I can't come yet. I've been given the role of Dunyasha in The Cherry Orchard. (laughs) But to me, there was nothing more exciting than doing Chekhov, doing Shakespeare. So what was really thrilling when I finally did come to New York and start doing things, that when I got the role of Helena in Shakespeare in the Park, directed by James Lapine, that to me was just the greatest coup de théâtre for me. And I did win an Obie Award, but I got to do Shakespeare under the stars in New York City. And it remains one of my top three theater experiences in my entire amazing, career. The amazing thing is that you had worked so hard for so many years. Yes, I had a lot. to yes. that point to yes, do Midsummer yeah, with Lapine. I, mm-hmm, I wasn't just fresh out of Juilliard suddenly given a starring role. Most of my 20s was spent, as I said, packing my bags and living very simply paycheck to paycheck, taking my various train rides and doing regional theater. And I was happy to do it. I lived on a regional theater salary. And back then, regional theater, I mean, I never worked at the Long Wharf, but the Long Wharf Theater was producing plays that would go to Broadway. Regional theater was a very exciting place. And I think it still is. The problem is, Young actors don't want to take the time to maybe go and do X number of years in a regional theater as training. See, that's why I think I've had a long career is I just kept going out there and doing it and doing it and doing it and living on stage. But I also did different styles of plays. There's Moliere and then there's restoration drama and then there's Shakespeare. And I was trained. Juilliard had such an emphasis on voice and speech that I got to put my training to use. So I've never been afraid of different styles of plays. If you handed me something, I'd say, yeah, I can jump in and enter that world. So by the time I got to New York, I had quite a bit under my belt. And late 20s, early 30s, I finally did Manhattan Theater Club. And of course, after I did Midsummer Night's Dream, James Lapine was directing the workshop of Sunday in the Park with George. So he asked me to audition for that and sing for the great Stephen Sondheim. And I got the role of the artist's wife in the workshop. And a director named Mike Nichols was at the final performance of that when we put the second act in that famous night that the second act was simply put in at Playwrights Horizons. And Mike saw my work. And then I auditioned for the real thing. And when I got the real thing, it was a big Broadway show playing Jeremy Irons' wife with Glenn Close, Tom Stoppard. We all won Tony Awards. By then I was 32 and I'd gotten married. And so by my early 30s, I was on the next level. 
most of my 30s was spent doing off-Broadway and Broadway. Then I became a New York actress in my 30s. Then in my 40s, I finally said, well, maybe it's time to look at this sitcom because I had two children to educate. And the role that I jumped at, or I I actually went kicking and screaming into (laughs) doing Sybil. I didn't want to live in LA and I was afraid of stopping my theater career, but it became clear after the experience of doing Nick and Nora, which was a punishing experience, it was a big Broadway flop, that maybe I had to think about the next thing to do in my career. So I didn't really want to do it, but I did it, as I said, for financial reasons. And also it seemed like a good role. But the fact is that when I did Sybil, it then took my career to yet another level. It opened up the world of TV and film to me. So that's how it happened. But that didn't happen until my early 40s. Well, I mean, like people say, it's certainly not overnight in any way. No, no, it's not overnight. But it's very hard to tell a young actress, take your time. Because we live in a fast-forward culture. And I've noticed even, it's funny, I was talking to Stephen Colbert yesterday because he did a concert version of Company. And I saw it. And I knew that when they did it, they hadn't had a proper run-through. And they finally went in front of the audience. They hadn't put it together. and. I've done several concert versions that are so harrowing because they don't give you enough time to rehearse. You just get out there, but you're judged by the same standard as though you had six weeks of rehearsal. But there's just a kind of fast forward to everything in our culture. Be a success quickly. Put the play together as fast as possible. Do a concert version. Throw it together. And I think your greatest asset and the greatest thing that you have as an artist, is time. It's what you need in order to become worth anything. You need time and process. So I do consider myself very lucky to have had the career that I had. And I'm not sure I could have that career anymore, where you spend a lot of years in the theater and eventually you win a few Tonys and then they really want you in Hollywood. But by the time you get there, There's work there and you get attention and it opens your career up to doing movies. That was a kind of trajectory that existed maybe 20 years ago. And I just don't know if that's the case now. I think things are just so much different now. We are the Lucille Lortel Foundation. And I want to talk about your relationship with Terrence McNally Mm. and the incredible Lips Together, Teeth Apart that you did that eventually moved to the Lucille Lortel Theater and ran there for a while. Will you talk a little bit about the play and a little bit about your relationship with Terrence and recently with his passing and the great documentary that they made about him? It's funny, I'm about to put something on tape speaking about him because they want to enter it for Emmy contention, of course. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking a lot about Terrence lately. It's uncanny, I think, that he passed away. He was the first well-known theater artist to pass away because of this coronavirus. And yet he wrote about with such passion and clarity about the other great pandemic of our time, the AIDS epidemic. And Lips Together in particular speaks of the moment we're living through. In fact, they did do an online reading of it. And Nathan and I spoke about Terrence. But By the time I did Lips Together, I had a relationship with Terrence because I had done It's Only a Play. We just had rapturous time doing that. And he lived across the street from me on 22nd Street. I was living actually at the ground floor of Victor Herbert, the American composer's, his townhouse. 
Anyway, we were neighbors. And when he wrote Lips Together, he said he wanted to write a play for the four of his favorite actors. And that was myself, fortunately, and Nathan and Tony Heald. And it, the other role was written for Kathy Bates. Anyway, it was a tortuous process to do it because Terrence did not do any rewrites. He pretty much gave us a first draft when we went into rehearsal. And we were taken aback by this because it felt like we had so much work to do. But because it had a happy ending and it was so well received, <laughs> I can say now that it was worthwhile. It might have been a catastrophe, but it was a truly collaborative process. We were doing rewrites and cutting and trimming and everything up until the time we opened. But it was a play that was perfect for its time because it addressed the fear and paranoia of living through the AIDS pandemic and how it affected not just gay people, but people who knew gay people who may have been in contact. That swimming pool was a metaphor for how do we mix fluids with people who had a wonderful kind of tension undertone to it because of that swimming pool that nobody wanted to go into. Rather like now we're living through don't touch other people, exactly. stay away from other people. So I think Terence's work actually will be revived and appreciated once again, because he was writing a lot about social isolation of different forms because of one's sexuality or because of AIDS, because of just loneliness in general, Frankie and Johnny so much about two people who are just living in their separate worlds, desperately wanting to connect and being afraid. But then, of course, there's his comedies. There's only three or four plays I've done that have gotten as many laughs as lips together, but those laughs, they came in like tsunamis. I mean, his gift as a comedic writer is just so great. He's right up there with Neil Simon in terms of those one-liners and it's only a play, it was just priceless. So yes, I had a long association with him and I had just come here to Connecticut to quarantine when I read the news, Audra and I shared an email about his passing and I said, the sad thing is the lights of Broadway won't dim for Terrence because the lights of Broadway are already out. So we haven't had a proper memorial service for Terrence yet. But as I said, I think people will be looking at his work again and appreciating it. Lips Together, I certainly think, is going to be very resonant. I was happy because last year, Nathan and I did read at the 92nd Street Y. We did something in his honor and for his birthday. And Nathan and I read that wonderful scene, dare I say, the show me your dick scene from Lips Together. And so Nathan and I were reunited and I saw Terrence. And back then, I mean, he was frail, but I was so happy that he got the Tony Award and he got up there and said what he had to say. And that long arc of his career, I think he was properly celebrated. I was there for the opening of Frankie and Johnny. That was the last play. He was still alive and he was up on the stage. So I think he knew that he was a most beloved theater person. And I don't know anyone, never worked with anyone who had such a love of the theater as Terrence McNally. You've had the opportunity to work with such incredible playwrights, Neil Simon, Terrence McNally. Don Guare, Tom John Stoppard. Qu yeah, House of Blue Leaves. Mm, the laughs, in fact, rumors, House of Blue Leaves, Boeing, Boeing. Mm -hmm. And it's only a play and lips together. 
you would hold for laughs and I always joked, you could go off stage, retouch your lips to come back and they'd still be laughing. That's how long the laugh would last. <laughs> and they're all so different. So different. And comedy. As a magnificent comedic actor, do you believe that comedy is something that the ability to really land a joke and hear the rhythms of the movement of the speech is innate or do you believe that it can be taught? The reason I'm probably a good comedian is I'm very musical. I have a great sense of rhythm and I just respond to music and I hear writing often as music. I can hear the rhythm of a line. I know when to pause just before a word so that the word lands. So in that regard, I think much of it is innate, but I will also say I learned a lot by watching comedy because in my youth, I watched Lucy reruns during the summer because I was a latchkey kid. My mom had to go to work and I watched all the Lucy reruns and I watched Carol Burnett and I watched Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke. I watched some of the greatest comedians in what was really a golden age of television, all in the family, all the Norman Lear shows. I didn't watch all of those shows, but I watched some of the great female comedians. And I've got to say, I must have learned so much by watching them. Plus, both your grandparents were actors, and your grandmother had her own Polish radio comedy show. show. A comedy show, correct? She wrote her own, she wrote with her friend. God, I'd do anything now, anything to talk to my Nana about that. She was an actress in the Polish theater, and that's how she saw my grandfather on stage. It was very romantic. She fell in love with him. He looked rather like Rudolph Valentino. Then they got married, and they were working theater actors. I think the Yiddish theater in the Lower East Side, this was the Polish theater because there was such a Polish community. And she sang operettas. There was a Polish radio station in Buffalo. And she wrote her own comedy show with this other lady named Mrs. Seidel. I grew up with a woman who was rather like Auntie Mame. She was colorful. She was flamboyant. She loved music. She loved artists. She loved the ballet. I remember my father taking me to the ballet, and one of the strongest memories I have of my father was at the curtain calls, watching these Polish dancers and singers. He was shouting bravo, and he was so moved, shouting bravo. There were tears running down his cheeks, and I was a very little girl because he died when I was eight. I must have been seven or eight. And I was so embarrassed that my father was shouting and crying. And I was nudging him and saying, Tatush, please stop. Tatush means father in Polish. I was embarrassed. And now it's one of my strongest memories is the love that my father and my grandmother had for music and for performance. And then my father insisted I go to ballet school. That's how I really started. My performing career was studying ballet. And I love dance. If I hadn't been an actor, I would have been a dancer. But anyway, I had an early influence, a very profound early influence because of my grandmother who shared a bedroom with me. And she was, she was rather a Mame-like character. She had all these friends and her friends would come and they'd get drunk in the living room and we couldn't sleep because they were singing and dancing. <laughs> you could tell they were a little loud, but they were very colorful people. <laughs> Do you remember the moment of performing? I mean, I know you played MAME in your senior year of high school and you were performing all through high school. Do you remember the moment that you said to yourself or to your mother and your family, this is what I'm going to do? 
no matter what, this is going to happen. I can't give you an exact moment, but it's like being struck by an arrow and that feeling of falling in love, like something hits you. It's a profound feeling. And I think I had it, it happened in high school before I played Mame. By the time I played Mame, it was clear that I was the actress in school, you know, and the drama teacher of the school, she was giving me things to do. But I can't remember an exact moment. I do know that I was able to make people laugh. I remember that from an early age. And it's a kind of power that you have when you can delight people. So it happened rather early. And I think it happened when I was dancing, not when I was acting. Because as I said, we had ballet recitals. And just being on the stage to me had an intoxicating effect. I felt powerful on the stage. Yeah, early on, way before high school. Was it like you could not do anything else? And I know that you researched, you found that Juilliard, I think, was in its third year. It had just started when you came aboard, correct? I think it was in its third year. I'll tell you what, Eric, what really, really changed my life in so many ways because it provided this incredible forward momentum. I was doing some acting in high school, but I was in a Polish-American community and I was at an all-girls Catholic high school. But I read about a theater workshop they were doing at the University of Buffalo and they were auditioning kids for it. And it would be music and dance and acting. And I auditioned for this and I got in. And so I would go on the campus of the University of Buffalo And suddenly I was with kids from all over the city. Suddenly I was with African-American kids, Jewish kids. I didn't know from Jewish kids. Everybody was a Polish Catholic in my neighborhood. There were kids from all over the city, different economic strata. And we did African dancing. We did drumming. We did improvisational plays. Mind you, this was 1968, 67, 68. I actually heard... I worked with and did a workshop with the Open Theater, with Joe Chaikin's Open Theater, because they came to UB. UB was very progressive, had a lot of avant-garde stuff going on in the 60s. I even heard Jerzy Grotowski speak because he came to Buffalo. He's the great avant-garde Polish director. And after I did that workshop, my life was just, I was on fire to be a performer. And I thought what I would probably do was go into experimental theater. But then I read about Juilliard in the Buffalo Evening News that they had just opened a drama division. And I think I was a junior in high school. And I remember cutting the article out and taping it to my wall saying, that's where I want to go. So I've told this story too many times, but I was not accepted initially. I called to see if I was accepted and they said I was on a waiting list because I had a lisp, a sibilant S. I had a space between my teeth. and. They said that a sibilant S or a thick S is the hardest sound to correct. So they were reluctant to have me be a student. And then they said, if I'd be willing to perhaps cap my two front teeth, because they thought the space was the reason for the slight whistle. And if I had speech therapy over the summer, they would reconsider me. So I always say I got into Juilliard by the skin of my teeth because I indeed did speech therapy had my teeth capped. My poor mom, I think she paid $500. It's a lot of money to get my two front teeth capped. And then I re-auditioned for Juilliard and I got in. So there we go. But yeah, a lot of people before I entered Juilliard. 
<laughs> you said you told it too much, but I've been researching you for the past few weeks. I never heard that story. That's a great story. Oh, I've told that story so many times, Eric. I'm almost embarrassed to tell it. Cause oh, I, I'm, I'm so happy you did. I've never heard it before. Oh, my God. Well, the wonderful thing is I went to New York with my mom, and I had to go up to John Hausman's office, mm -hmm. and I was given a page of sentences with almost nothing but S words. <laughs> and I sat across from John Hausman and the speech teacher, the very famous Elizabeth Smith, stood with her back to me facing the window, looking out at the window while she listened to me. And I did this page of S's. And then when I finished, John Hausman said, well, Elizabeth, and I just remember her nodding. She didn't say anything and she didn't turn to me. I just remember the woman nodding and John Hausman saying, well, something to the effect of you've been accepted to Juilliard. Wow. And the moment, I mean, to this day, it will bring tears to my eyes because it changed my life, of course. But my mother was waiting for me in the lobby of what was then Philharmonic Hall, now David Geffen Hall. Mm -hmm. And I told my mother the good news. And we went to the Algonquin Hotel and got drunk. It was the only time I got drunk with my mother. We had <laughs> Southern Comfort Manhattans in the middle of a hot, May Day. And then we went to see the theater and we saw Tammy Grimes and Brian Bedford in Private Lives. The great Brian Bedford, one of the great classical actors. So yeah, happy day. And it might not have happened. I mean, I got in on practically a full scholarship. I was the hardest working kid in the class. After my first year, they gave me a $1,000 scholarship as something called the Jack Landau Scholarship for the student who was the most hardworking. You went to Europe on that money, didn't I you? I went. <laughs> you have done your research. <laughs> I spent every last penny for two months on $1,000. I went to the cheapest hotels, wow. but you can't do it now. Young woman traveling alone. It was just one of the greatest things I ever ever did. And I was warned to use that money to live on. But nope, I was at the passport office the next day. <laughs> you know, speaking of which, I think we've talked a lot about you as a young actor and the dues that you paid. And I know many people ask you this question, but I'm fascinated. What advice do you give young actors now? And I know you're asked this question all the time, but I think it's important. Well, as per our former remarks, I tell them that they need to keep doing it, number one, however they do it, even if they're in their apartment. When I was unemployed as an actor, I'd go to libraries or I'd do research or I read plays or I read plays aloud or I memorized poetry. You've got to keep the muscle going. During this quarantine, for instance, the one thing that I do almost every day, unless the weather is filthy, I take almost a four-mile walk and I carry the script of The Gilded Age, which is what I would have been filming now if it weren't for this situation. And I memorize lines or I learn new lines or I review the lines that I know so as to keep the muscle going. It is a muscle. Actors need to think of themselves in the same way singers or dancers do. It's the muscle. If, if you want to have a flexible, fluid voice and have the power to sing, you have to sing every day obviously with dancing. They said Nureyev was doing plies. Even as an old man, he'd get up and he'd still do plies. So he didn't have a career anymore, but he'd warmed up. I try and tell young people to get the training and to trust in time. 
as I said before, somehow I lived in a different culture, a different time all those years ago, and you didn't have to be in a hurry to be famous. But I think you can't just think of your youth as a commodity, as an artist. You have to be in it for the long haul. And I always point to my own career and I say, look, I'm a woman. I'm in my 60s now, and I'm busier than I ever was. I'm in two shows. And if I wanted to be in a Broadway show or do something, I'd call Lynn Meadow and say, hey, I want to do this. I have the power now to sort of say, I'm going to go back to the theater. And that's years, not even years, it's decades and decades. So, you know, you can do the math. I went to Juilliard in 1970. (laughs) It was just the 50th anniversary of the opening of Company. And that was the first Broadway musical I saw when I arrived at Juilliard. And I sat in the upper balcony because it was all I could afford. And I still remember seeing Elaine Stritch. And I remember Donna McKechnie. And I remember those ensemble. And it was just enthralling. And that was 50 years ago. Okay. So long career, but you just put one foot in front of the other. And looking back, I guess, okay, playing Dunyasha in the Cherry Orchard in Baltimore, I was this young kind of sexy girl in my 20s. Maybe I should have, you know, maybe I should have been more. Maybe I would have had a bigger quote unquote film career if I had started earlier. But I have exactly the career now that I wanted. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And I wouldn't have wanted to get stuck in Hollywood doing some dumb comedy just because it would make me famous. Because I think there's a real danger in fame coming too soon. That much I know. And not only that, but you had a family and two children that you brought up outside of New York and outside of Hollywood. Your focus was not only on career, but it was raising your girls and keeping your family. Exactly, exactly. And that had a wonderful grounding effect. I was married to a man who was an actor, but we had our rural life in Connecticut. And I did, I did a great deal of commuting, but it always kept me grounded. And I'm grateful for that. I'm sorry to hear about the passing of Matthew. Oh, thank you. He lived. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And God, what an original! What an original! I met him a few times. You came into the restaurant when we were down in (laughs) DC, and I always had great conversations with him. And your daughter has grown into a wonderful actor. She's lovely. Your daughter, Lily. Yes, I'm very lucky. Much of her father in her. Yeah. What's your hope for our community and for theater and for off-Broadway when we come out of this, when we're able to sit in a theater together and be together? I think we are all going to come back with such a deeper level of gratitude and commitment, knowing how much we took it for granted. Not that we ever did, because when you're an actor, you're always thinking, oh my God, aren't I lucky to be on the stage? But it will be exponentially more so. I think we will find each other on deeper levels and communicate on a deeper level. I tell you, I watched that Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, and I saw all of those great performers and the level of depth that they were bringing to his work in their living rooms or singing Michael Cerverus singing Finishing the Hat, just looking out of a window. It was to me so eloquent about the power of what we do and reconnecting with a live audience. It's like we're all racehorses stuck in a barn, but I think when we're let loose, our spirits are going to soar. Imagine Adrian Warren getting back on the stage and being Tina again. I'm kind of happy for her that her body, her 
beautiful body can get a rest because it was such a punishing experience. I've never seen a performance like that. I couldn't believe she didn't do eight a week, but even if she were only doing seven or six, just what she did in the course of an evening was astonishing. And Broadway's filled with that kind of energy. I'm so grateful that my career also took me to musical comedy where it curiously started when I did MAME in high school, but then I sort of became this classical actress and we didn't have any singing training at Juilliard, even though it was a great music school. But I'm grateful that I entered that world a bit later because although I did company early on in my 20s, I played April in company. I really didn't do musicals until finally in my 50s, I did Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. I did MAME and I've done concert versions of Follies and Little Night Music. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I had the privilege of just being on stage with these singers and dancers, these young singers and dancers. When I did MAME, when I did Sweeney, when I did On Your Toes at City Center, when I did Follies at the Royal Albert Hall, when I see the caliber of talent of the singers and dancers that are not front and center, they're not the stars, they don't get to play Phyllis or Auntie Mame or Mama Rose, they're in the back. But the level of commitment from these people is awe-inspiring and deeply moving. And I'm glad I was able to be part of that community as well. I'm so grateful today that I got to speak to an idol of mine again and to reconnect. I'm astounded by your artistry and your craft, your dedication to your craft, how versatile you are for bringing to life all these incredible characters that are iconic. And now Diane Lockhart, who is locked in my heart and America's heart to watch it, to be excited every Thursday or every other Thursday now to see this woman rip this country apart. I'm such a huge fan. I'm so honored that you were here today with me. And I can't wait for you to come back to theater. I'm sure you will. I can't wait for that day. So I'm so honored. Thank you. And thank you for doing such lovely research on my career. It was a real pleasure to speak with you and to be reminded of things that I hold dear. Well, it was my honor and my pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live with the Lortel. While this pandemic goes on, we are asking our listeners to please consider donating to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org to help support theater artists. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucia Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, pressed by Chris Kanarik, social media by Mia Radia, and special thanks to Nancy Hervitz. Live at the Lortel is usually recorded at the Lucia Lortel Theater in New York City, but during this pandemic, it is being recorded remotely by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment.